Hello, free thinkers. I'm Mickey Z, and I welcome you to Post Woke, the New York City-based podcast where we practice intellectual self-defense. I think that crisis and collapse offer us an opportunity to make a change. They interrupt the um, uh, hypnosis of normality. The person you just heard is Charles Eisenstein, my guest on episode number 46. Charles is a writer, speaker, countercultural philosopher, and the author of several books. His newest book, The Coronation, was just released in late July. So please check the show notes for details on how to order it today. We will get to my conversation with Charles right after this brief word from our sponsor. Actually, before we get to that word from our sponsor, I want to send out a quick but sincere note of gratitude to all of you who have purchased a post-woke podcast t-shirt. I appreciate it very much. Sales are up and I urge the rest of you, hey, it's time to elevate your fashion sense and show the world what your favorite podcast is. Check the show notes to find out how to order your post-woke podcast t-shirt today. Hey, Mickey Z here, and I'm asking you to offer some support for a project that I've been running for nearly six years. It's called Helping Homeless Women NYC. And as the name implies, I've been getting out there on the streets for, like I said, nearly six years to offer direct relief to some of the most vulnerable yet fiercest women you'll ever want to meet. If you check the show notes, you will find a direct link for how to donate at GoFundMe. If you're interested in becoming a Patreon patron or in ordering uh, restaurant gift cards directly from my wish list, shoot me an email and I'll send you that information. But I'm just requesting some support, thanking you in advance and asking you no matter what to please share the link far and wide. Now let's get back to the show. And I'm back with Charles Eisenstein. Charles, welcome to Post Woke. Hey, Mickey. Good to be here. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it. I, I think there's a chance we crossed paths back in the Occupy Wall Street days because I didn't realize it at the time. But while doing a little background research on you, I now see that you gave talks there. You were in the park. And I was like, I was there all the time. We must have crossed paths. But I'm glad we have this chance to finally chat. Yeah, no, I was only there one time. Oh, okay. One, yeah, I wasn't there a lot. I was, I just came through and spoke there one day. Well, that's interesting. the 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 way it was shot, and it seems to be on a couple of videos, looks like it was multiple times. That's cool. All right, so um, you, I already gave you an intro. You have your new book out. So I want to begin with a book related question. Where I'm curious to know how the act of releasing a book feels to you in 2022, because. For context, my first book came out in the year 2000, and it took two years from signing a contract in 1998 to its debut, but that seemed to feel right at the time for something that was, was quote-unquote, permanent. And obviously, things have changed since then. We, we have a never-ending flow of what's now called content, and our writing can almost seem fleeting as if it becomes obsolete in a matter of minutes. So in such a publishing environment, 
what inspires you to release new books and how do you feel the coronation will stand as a snapshot of a particular time period and of a particular mindset of yours? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, so there's a there's a flip side to the constant publishing that um, we do on blogs or Substack or something like that, uh, where you take a topical issue and you say something about it and then two weeks later, it's kind of obsolete. Like people yeah. don't usually go back into somebody's Substack, especially if they're a journalist and read something that they wrote, you know, a year and a half ago. Yeah. Um, the thing is though, if you do write something that is relevant beyond the immediate time, then a year later, like it's still relevant, but what are you going to do? Post it again? You know? <laughs> so, so that's why the, the essays I collected in the book are, they, they are originally mostly on Substack and on my website, but there are things that have a relevance beyond the current events that they spoke to. And in fact, in some of them, in some cases become even more relevant. Like today, uh, like a lot of the things that I wrote in those essays at the time were just kind of subsumed in the shifting tides of the polarized political landscape. And now that some of that charge has dissipated, the um, deeper issues I was speaking to are no longer obscured by the lens of, okay, hold on, is he you know, pro-vax or anti-vax? Is he this or that, A or B, black or white? The, there's maybe post-pandemic, there's a little bit more receptivity to nuance and, and depth. Uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate that answer because <clears throat> I felt as I was reading it, I was transported to some degree into the mind of someone who's writing in the midst of a very, very um, fluid and at times confusing situation. But the essays maintain this timeliness because, because, as you said, you managed to write about them in a way that revealed itself, your writing revealed more of itself as we opened up our minds to more and more of what's going on during this time period. And re related to that, I I'm curious to know, in the last two plus years of this intense pandemic programming and the intensifying move towards the Great Reset, how is this, if if it has, how has it changed your worldview or validated it or perhaps did a little bit of both? Mm -hmm. Um yeah. Yes to all of those. <laughs> um, I mean, I definitely went through a process that many, many people have gone through in the pandemic of questioning, questioning beliefs that I had thought were beyond question. The result for me was I ultimately, um, I, I even like abandoned certain beliefs uh, to kind of clear the table uh, and went through a phase of questioning everything. And in the end, I came back to a lot of the beliefs that I started with, although there have been some things that have changed. Um, the main thing, and this isn't just with the pandemic, but it, it, it intensified through the pandemic as I saw every dystopian nightmare that I'd ever, enter, ever entertained coming true with... Uh, great dismay. And I stopped believing finally that 
crisis or collapse was going to save us. And this has been a, a, a belief that has been growing over the last five or 10 years. In my earlier work, I thought that the way that change happens is that there's a collapse and we're kind of forced through the birth canal and we have to change now. And this is also a common theme in environmental discourse. You know, we'll, we, we can't continue destroying the earth because we'll do ourselves in, so we have to change. We have to make the changes that we environmentalists always wanted to make. And I no longer believe that. I think that crisis and collapse offer us an opportunity to make a change. They interrupt the um, uh, hypnosis of normality so that we, because with the pandemic, I'm like, if anything was going to make us change, it would be totalitarianism staring us in the face. And the blithe acceptance of so many people to that really um, reconfigured me. And I believe much more now that, you know, in what I just said, that, that we are offered a choice, which is why I call the book The Coronation which is an initiation into sovereignty and into conscious choice where we had been unconscious. Ah, that's fascinating. I, I, I saw that I saw, I'm not going to say I saw it as clearly as you just explained it, but the play on Corona and crown and coronation, I thought was, was an element in there, but having just heard what you said, that, that title seems even more appropriate. Um, all right, I didn't expect to go in this direction, but I'm going I'm to back up into what you were talking about, crisis and collapse, because as I've become more familiar with your work, I find at times, and correct me if you think, if you think this is wrong, that some of your work might dovetail with, would say, someone like Derek Jensen, who mm -hmm. I have done events with, and we, we knew each other for years. We've kind of lost touch now, and I've always got the, <clears throat> the impression that he's somebody that the collapse is inevitable and ultimately a good thing. So am yep. I correct in hearing you that that's not a belief that maybe it's a belief you once sort of were a fellow traveler on and perhaps the, the pandemic has put the final nail in the coffin and you're like, no, that's not the direction we want to go in. Yeah, I, I, be, I was um, I read De uh, Derek Jensen and other uh, anti-civ radicals, anti-civilization radicals. John Zerzan, Daniel yeah. Quinn, and so forth in the early 2000s. And my first book, The Ascent of Humanity, was very much a response to that because I was like, okay, yeah, I get all of the horrible things that have happened in the name of civilization as a result of civilization, but I was unwilling to discard the whole thing as just a dumb mistake or a wrong turn or an emanation of some innate evil of humanity because so much beauty and good has come from civilization too, you know, like, like Beethoven, uh, uh, a piano, uh, like these are, there, there's some, and this was the, the foundational question of the ascent of humanity was, uh, can the gift of technology and culture be separated from the curse? Is there some kind of maturation process that will uh, initiate us into the true expression of the fundamental gifts of being human? And I saw all of civilization, the ascent of separation, this, I call it the story of separation, the separate self in a world of other, 
um, I, I, be, I saw that as part of a much larger process and civilization as we've known it with all of its evils as part of a larger process that includes a return. So um, I kind of agree with Derek Jensen's starting point, but not with his conclusions. And I don't know, it's been a long time since he's wrote that stuff and maybe he's, um, you know, maybe his views have evolved as well. Good point. Yeah. 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 No, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just wanted to say that I hadn't even, I have to admit, I hadn't even pondered that because I identified him so strongly with those beliefs that I wasn't giving him credit, a, a smart guy like him, for being able to evolve out of them. So that, that's, I, I appreciate that mindset there. Um, I, but did I cut you off? You want to keep going? No, I don't know. I mean, I, I've, I've had limited uh, interaction with Derek and uh, I, I like the guy, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and like a couple of times people have tried to set us up to debate each other and we were both like, we don't want to debate. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> yeah. 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 That that just seems like this sports mentality. It's like you, you want to do a live streaming of the two of you going toe to yeah. toe. But I, I want to jump on something you said, a phrase you said in there of the fundamental gifts. And I'm going to move mm -hmm. into a more general topic and one that I fully, fully associate with you, which is the living in the gift. And um, I don't know if I've heard you exactly say this, or it was someone else, or for all I know, I dreamt it or all of the above, but it's been said that there's no boundary between altruism and selfishness. Maybe you, maybe it was you that said that. And I, I feel that I learned a lot about altruism from my parents, and I was fortunate to, to uh, get those lessons. And I've lived a lot of it firsthand, but I, I run a program here in New York City to help homeless women. And what I've learned a lot more is how much I've been gifted by doing the gifting. Mm -hmm. And now that I have a chance to speak to you directly, I would really appreciate you elaborating on this concept as something you see, you live, and you teach. Yeah. So what you experience with the homeless women is this fundamental unity of giving and receiving that, that even, and especially if you don't contrive that somehow your giving is going to is going to confer benefits on you, then you receive unexpected benefits. And in fact, because you don't control the return gift, you actually free the return gift to take its proper form and come to you. Whereas if, say, that you ran some program for homeless women, but you made absolutely sure that you were getting a lot of praise and a lot of recognition for it and that everybody was noticing and that there was always a photo op and it was going to go viral and that you were going to be uh, yeah, recognized for this work, then you might actually receive that kind of praise, but you wouldn't receive the other gifts mm -hmm. that would be cut off by your attempt to control how it comes back to you. So this is, uh, so the, the return gift that you experience is a signature of the nature of reality that is outside the modern Western story of the world and story of the self that has us as competing separate selves in a world that does not bear its own intelligence and logic and purpose, but that is just ruled by arbitrary forces um, acting on generic particles. Like that worldview uh, is demolished through the kind of experience that you're talking about, which then points to a different story 
of what a hu human being is and how the world works, which is, I call it, I use the Buddhist term for that uh, story of interbeing, which says that we're not separate individuals, but we are each of us a nexus of relationship, that we are the totality of our relationships, that relationship is primary and the self is a function of that, that what we do to the world, we do to ourselves, that what happens in the world happens to us. Like all of this, uh, they sound like spiritual principles, but we even use the word spiritual to, to uh, acknowledge the things that don't fit into the material consensus view of reality but they're not spiritual in the sense of non-material they're part of the they're, they're they're properties of the material world too and and so entering into a gift orientation where you understand that the reason i'm here is to give something to the world uh, and to contribute to something bigger than myself that is beautiful to me and meaningful to me uh, that can't remember where I began that sentence, but I'll end it by saying that that is actually what human nature is. And when we occupy that, we begin to experience the truth of it as that's reflected back at us. Wow, I really I really appreciate that. That um, you know, and quick side note, I I have been trying to do this delicate dance in terms of I have to promote the project to some degree in order to get funding. I can't afford to do this alone. And I have had some people say, say that I was um, humble bragging when I did it. And I was like, well, if I do it in complete um, obscurity, I can't do it as well as I do it. So it, yeah. it, is, it is quite a, it is quite a trick there. So I guess one of the gifts I got is getting better at that for that matter, but that would be a minor gift compared to the, to the, the one-on-one -on -one relationships that I've developed and the lessons that I've learned on the streets. So mm -hmm. I, I, and again, I associate this idea so strongly with you. Um, now I'm not saying this as a pushback. I'm kind of asking it as a question that I'm sure you've heard before. When you say something like, what you put into the world you get back how does that how do we square that with a um, a planet on which so few humans have access to so many resources and so many humans live in a state of daily um suffering and struggle how, how can we make sense of that and how how can we apply the living in the gift mentality in a way to to improve even beyond our neighborhoods and our immediate reach and or can yeah. we I mean, a lot of the wealthy and powerful and privileged also are, in a certain sense, living a day-to-day -day struggle, mm -hmm. subject to constant anxiety and even a constant hunger that we name as addiction and constant misery. The, the, the happiest people that I've ever interacted with are not to be found in the Hamptons, you know, or Beverly Hills or Malibu. Uh, they are people living in less developed developed parts of the world. So we have a uh, it's actually kind of a, a a phony wealth in the most affluent places. But the poverty that people in positions of wealth and power visit upon the world ultimately always comes back to them in a different form. 
just as what we give to the world comes back to us too, but it is it is usually in a different form. It's not like if you give all of your money away, you're going to get even more money back. It's not like that. But you will have an experience, if it is truly a gift, sooner or later, you will have an experience of having a rich life. Mm. And if you hoard and control and are stingy, no matter how much you have in your bank account, you will have the experience of poverty, of loneliness, of uh, stress, of busyness. That's a kind of poverty, the scarcity of time, the scarcity of well-being, scarcity of intimacy. You know, these, these are um, such intense experiences of suffering that people sometimes kill themselves because of them. Wow, that that was beautifully stated and incredibly thought-provoking. And it it and it, as you're saying it, it's the type of sentiment that in the type of society we live in feels at times alien and almost almost crazy to say out loud. And then when <clears throat> someone like you is saying it in a very clear confident and articulate way, I'm playing it back in my head, like who are the happiest people that I've met? And what have I gotten back when I've done this for this reason or this for maybe more of a self-serving reason? And the the consistency of it is there. It's it uh, so much of the intention matters. And to, to, to de um, define uh, the scarcity of time as a form of poverty actually is is very humbling and it does it does resonate in the sense that you you encounter people who put their value in something like time or community over material ownership and wealth and they do seem to have a, a life of less anxiety in many cases obviously we're speaking in very general terms here yeah. um so i'm really really fascinated by this so you you teach courses related to this am i correct Oh, not really. Oh, okay. Okay. So <laughs> I, I have some online courses, but I haven't re they're kind of all DIY at this point. I haven't really uh, launched one for quite a while. You know, during COVID, I'm like, I just became allergic to offering anything that the ask is that people spend any time in front of their computer. Good point. I mean, I keep publishing essays and stuff, but really like, you know, as far as like getting people together and I, I don't know, I'm, I mean, I have a lot of material that I'd like to share, but I just have this reluctance to launch another online course. I can understand that. I could also imagine, though, that people that know your work would would love it if you did it, but that you have to do it if it feels right for you. It it what what a mixed bag and like what a mixed message to say like I want to share, but. What's been imposed upon the people is this isolation and this even greater increase in how much time they spend yeah. in front of screens. And I don't want to contribute to that, but you, speaking to you specifically, um, have a lot to offer. So how um, the book is one wonderful way <clears throat> to do that. And you'd like to imagine someone reading it in a park or on a beach or sitting by a lake and th therefore getting getting your, um, your point of view without being an, another – pixelated experience, but how, how do we find that kind of balance? How in, in this digital age and in an age where a fair amount of people might be a little nervous about face-to-face, -face, um, I, I mean, I don't know what, what, where it, what mm -hmm. it's like with you, but 
living in New York City, it feels like a big chunk of this city is not ready to give up the fear, the masks or anything. Like yeah. they, they, I walk down the street and if someone has the mask like down on their chin, sort of like a, a blinking beard, as I get closer, they pull it up. And I'm like, how, how could I possibly connect with that person saying, hey, let's get together and talk about what's going on when they don't even want to be within six mm -hmm. feet of me on the street? Yeah. Uh, I was just in New York a few days ago and and it was kind of like going back in time. Yeah. Uh, in most places in this country now, people no one's wearing a mask, you know, but but in New York, yeah, it's still a lot of fear. And as far as the how to, um, there's probably a million ways to do it. But if someone's not ready, uh, then the mask, like the masks, it, the reason that people so willingly took to the masks, there, there are many reasons that have nothing to do with whether they're actually effective or not in stopping transmission of a disease. Um, and I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole, I think, you know, but I will not hide the fact that I think that they are almost completely ineffective. Agreed. But, but that doesn't matter. Like there are many unconscious reasons why people uh, welcomed the masks. One is because they kind of um, concretized a pre-existing feeling of separation and um, a desire to retreat into your own bubble, so to speak, like the discomfort. I mean, in New York already, like no one meets each other's eyes when they're walking down the street. Like it's you already almost might as well have been masked to begin with, mm. or you're figuratively speaking, you're wearing a mask. So, so the psychic conditions for masking were already present. Um, and another um, unconscious driver of masking is that they, um, they're like this uh, sacred talisman that wards off evil. So if you are feeling a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety, the world isn't safe, um, I don't feel at home here, there is danger all around. That's kind of what anxiety is, right? There's danger all around, out of my control. And then someone gives you a magic charm and says, here, wear this around your neck, you know, strap this to your face and you, it will keep you safe from evil. You will not suffer curses. Uh, most human beings in history believe that illness came as a result of a curse or of an evil spirit that possessed you. So here we have a magic talisman, some ceremonial headgear that in our religion called science uh, protects us from possession by an evil spirit and wards off curses and keeps us safe. Whether or not it actually does that is irrelevant. As long as people believe that that's what it does, then it is a tremendous relief to have this talisman or to you know have a potion injected into your veins that does the same thing or to you know go to these little shrines at the airport and stick your hands under where a potion comes out of the spigot and you rub your hands together performing a ritual ablution and then that keeps you safe from possession by an evil spirit like you can't understand what happened in the last two and a half years without taking without looking at those years through the lens of ritual and religion.
Yeah, as you were speaking, it, it just I'm thinking if you feel completely powerless and without control, you will you will it's like holding up a crucifix to a vampire. You want to yeah. ward off this evil and it also reminded me in some ways of like the classic um, pattern of OCD, where if someone is obsessing over potential danger happening to them or someone they love, and as the, their compulsion then is to turn on and off each um, light switch twice, that's going to do it. That's right. what they need to do. And, 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 um, I was recently speaking to uh, Dr. Robert Malone, and he was mentioning how OCD is dramatically up in the past two years. And so I, that connection seems seems more clear to me. I have a, I also have a cynical theory on the masks where, and this is maybe is a New York thing because it is a very um, exhibitionistly activist town where mm -hmm. it is the perhaps the, the easiest form of virtue signaling ever invented where you're literally wearing your virtue on your face. And I, as being in New York, the entire pandemic, I've seen it from um, the, the, the dramatic way that the mask gets put on the double mask. I saw a guy today wearing a mask that looked to me like he was about to go into a mine, like the way, the way it was built. It had like these, these objects on the side that may have been pumping in air. And we're talking about we're in August, 2022. And it felt to me that there could be a component of what, Absolutely, what you said. This, this fear-driven desire to have any talisman that's going to make you feel safe, and being that this is New York, it's also a way to for people to virtual signal that, hey, I didn't vote for Trump, or I, yeah. I got, I got vaxxed. and and it's a little more cynical perspective, but I, I think it might be a lot of these things simultaneously at play. Yeah. So the virtual virtual signaling, um, I, I also like thought have thought a lot about that and what underlies the virtue signaling like what do people what are people actually after when they um signal their virtue uh or really what they're doing is is signaling their conformity to in-group norms and values mm. you display the appropriate opinions you abide by the accepted taboos uh, and then you identify as a member of the group, you belong. So what makes people susceptible to that is a pre-existing condition of insecurity, of not belonging, of having no community, of having no identity in relation to uh, the world, in relation to your own purpose, like not knowing who am I. If you don't have a strong sense of who am I, then you will be insecure. If you don't have strong connections to community, other people who know who you are, then you'll feel insecure and you'll be susceptible to um, substitutes or, or uh, other offerings of a sense of belonging and identity, which could be through virtue signaling, um, uh, membership in various opinion tribes, political uh, affiliations, um, also, the same underlying insecurity and poverty, to return to that, it's a kind of a poverty, a poverty of relationship, also makes people susceptible to cults, um, conspiracy theories, um, including the cult that we call the mainstream. <laughs> That's very much a cult as well. And during COVID, really acted like a cult. I concur with that. Absolutely. Um, I 
since you mentioned conspiracy theories, um, I, I think we're doing okay time-wise here. Where I do want to mention one of the um, essays in your book is called The Conspiracy Myth. That's the correct title, right? Yeah. And I felt like as I was reading it, that you were <clears throat> really straddling the fence in the sense of trying to represent both sides, not not in terms of what you perceive them standing for, <clears throat> but not take one of those sides. Um, but I also felt that it didn't it didn't represent enough of the range of people that I would who in today's world they're called truthers or free thinkers, but anyone who is skeptical of the standard COVID narrative. I thought, because I personally know, and I consider myself one of them, as someone who has questioned, and I've done so much research, like you said, on the masks and on the, the six-foot distance, but I don't automatically tie it to something like the Illuminati or yeah. a New World Order. I, I see it as like a counter-narrative. And I'm just curious to know how you feel about that strain of non-mainstream people. Yeah, so, okay, I do think that there are conspiracies that um, penetrate very high levels of our um, power structures. Um, but when I talk about the conspiracy myth or the conspiracy with maybe a capital C, I'm talking about a particular narrative that says that the fundamental explanation for everything that's happening in the world is a shadowy cabal um, of, you know, diabolical puppet masters. And that is, and I call that a myth, not because I'm saying it's just a fantasy, it's not true, but because uh, it's a myth. Like it's, it's, it's truth is independent of its objective factuality. Just like, you know, um, Bible stories, or I like to use the example of the myth that the earth rests on the back of a turtle. You're like, as soon as you hear that, whether it's from a North American indigenous source or a Hindu source or a Chinese source, I mean, many cultures actually believe that the earth rests on the back of a turtle. As soon as you hear that, I don't know, I get kind of a little tingle on my spine. I, I'm like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> and you could show me a picture, you know, from the space station. Look, no turtle. <laughs> See, but that doesn't matter. Like there's a truth in myth. There's a truth in the, the, the fairy tales, you know, and the folk tales, the, the, the mythologies. They, they convey, um, they're a vehicle of truth. So the conspiracy, the conspiracy myth that, that says there's a, you know, evil force operating behind the scenes, like that's true. Something, it, it, it speaks to a truth that, that there's something unfriendly to human well-being that is coordinating everything. Now, that coordinating power might be an ideology. It might be a story. It might be an unconscious agreement. Like a lot of times, what looks like a conspiracy actually has no... Um, conscious origin. Like I give the example um, of like my fourth grade class where everybody turned on Kent and said he had cooties and thought he was weird and wouldn't have anything to do with him. And, and it looked like everybody got together and, and formed a conspiracy to do that.
But actually, it was just like one day he attracted the negative attention of one of the bullies. And he's like, ooh, you're weird, you know? And someone else heard him and's like, ooh, I don't want to be associated with weird. Mm. Someone else heard him and's like, yeah, I'll pile on there and get acceptance from this bully and the popular kids. And then I was like, well, gosh, I don't think he's weird at all, but I better not speak up because then, you know, I'll get picked on too. Uh, and someone else is like, yeah, I'll pick on Kent so that I won't get picked on. Like it looked like a conspiracy, a conscious conspiracy, but it was more of a situation I call it mob mentality, where where everybody just kind of knows what to do. Like mm. the scientist who he may not be getting orders from the Illuminati, don't you dare research, you know, vaccine adverse events. But here he is in grad school, he's applying for his postdoc. And either he could uh, propose researching vaccine adverse events and get quashed and unemployed, or he could maybe, you know, I'm just not going to touch that. I think I'll research, you know, some other topic um, that's innocuous. And yeah, then he gets his, his funding. So like there's, it's like all of these half lies and mm. failures of courage and like kind of conspiracies of silence. And when everybody does that, the people who are, are secretly harboring heretical thoughts think that they're alone. Like I, I didn't know anybody else in the class thought that Kent was just fine because nobody dared speak out, just mm. like I didn't dare speak out. So I think there's a lot of that going on today. And, and so what I'm saying is that the, like the idea that it's all a giant conspiracy that is arranging all of this, it prevents us from considering mob morality. It prevents us from considering um, uh, like the way that institutions take on a life of their own. Um, so I just feel, feel like there's a lot missing from the conspiracy narratives. Uh, and at the same time, like, you know, I think that things like the JFK assassination, even the RFK assassination, 9-11, the London, London subway bombing, like there's like a lot of really fishy stuff. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I was yeah. going to jump in and say <clears throat> to anyone listening to that, if they're not familiar with you or haven't yet read the book, and I highly urge you all do, um, that in that essay, <clears throat> you are crystal clear that you're aware of of how um, the powers that shouldn't be operate and create situations that become legitimate conspiracies. You're, you're, but you're getting more philosophical and big picture about it, which I think is incredibly yeah. helpful. And but now you got me feeling really bad about Kent. I'm going to be honest with you. I, hope, yeah. I, I really hope that he bounced back and and because that's a tough time. That's a tough age to be the target in a class. Yeah. So, wow. Um, yeah. All right. So as, as we get close to wrapping up, I want to say this. You're obviously quite well known, but surely some listeners here are encountering you for the first time. So I'm going to ask you, what gift would you be happy to learn that they received from hearing this conversation of you with me today? Um, I, would, I would be happy to, to know that, that, um, that maybe people are opening up to a less dogmatic and less entrenched, polarized way of looking at current events and recent events, especially 
to not default to the uber explanation for everything, which is that there's just some bad people out there. You know, like you can explain some things by saying, well, they're just bad. But if you've ever, say, gotten stuck between uh, two people in a fighting couple, where each one has a really strong story about how horrible the other one is, and, you know, both of them are missing something, like then, then you know that there's usually a lot more to the story than the irredeemable evil of one side. And that that mindset of, it, it's like I was saying about the masks, you know, it's, it's a relief to project all of evil, all of our problems, all of our crises, uh, all of our anxiety onto a culprit. That's why the public was so vulnerable to um, COVID scaremongering. You know, like we, we've been been facing increasing levels of chronic disease and misery and depression and addiction and self-harm and domestic abuse and all kinds of social and physical ills for generations. And we were then told, oh, here's the problem. It's a virus and we can control that. So there were people almost breathed a sigh of relief. Ah, finally, if we control this virus, we'll be happy and healthy forever. Like that whole way of thinking of find the enemy is itself an enemy. And sometimes, okay, sometimes like in a Batman movie, you know, it is the way to understand something. But I mean, just look at how we're manipulated by through this parade of one bad guy after another, after another, you know, Bashar al-Assad, you know, Saddam Hussein, uh, Vladimir Putin, you know, like just point to the enemy and then any, anything is justified because here's the source of all of our problems. Oh, and then there's also an internal enemy that mirrors the external, the, the heretics, the anti-vaxxers, you know, the bad people. So we have to have a, a, an internal purge and a destruction of civil liberties and so forth. Um, and all the values that, by the way, used to be called left and, and liberal that are now derided as right wing. I mean, I know this is called post-woke and we didn't even have to talk about that, but, but, you know, I mean, it used to be the left that was the victim of the conspiracy theories, COINTELPRO, you know, the, the infiltration by the FBI of the civil rights movement, yep. of the anti-globalization yep. movement, of the environmental movement, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, we could go on and on, but um, now I'm kind of a, uh, getting unhinged here. So no, 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 I appreciate everything you just said, because um, I do, I really, really enjoyed this conversation. And I do believe anyone who took the time to listen and now follow up and read your book is going to be gifted with that in the sense that you're, you're, you're a very encouraging writer and speaker. And I don't ever get the sense from you that you're giving someone a blueprint necessarily of what to say or do. You're kind of just pointing people in different directions as opposed to the one that you were just describing where we where they create this climate of alienation and fear and then we're looking for you know we're always looking for as you mentioned like the next hitler they establish hitler yeah. as the epitome of evil so any villain that's called the next hitler we don't even need to elaborate what those two words mean and then we just go after them and you're saying no you know look inside look around ask more questions and and be, just be more open-minded and it's just, I mean, it doesn't get more fundamental than that. And that's right. kind of what we need. So I, I felt as I, I, I knew your work 
And then when I got your book and started doing my homework on you, I felt that way. I felt like I'm like, this is a this is a person that I really feel like resonates with me, but but I feel like is giving me a lot of space to think for myself, but is urging me, think for yourself. But there's no sense of you saying, think like me, or this is where you should go. But you're just saying, look out for the the um the the methods being used to limit your perceptions and thinking and mm-hmm. I, to me there's nothing more important than that and 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 yeah this is post woke and it, it does definitely i mentioned occupy wall street earlier on it does definitely grow out of my experience as a left wing writer and activist in a more traditional sense who i feel the left has shifted and now they point their finger at me and call me a fascist or something i'm like I'm still standing in the same spot. You guys went in a different direction and it's very disconcerting, but I, I feel like it's an opportunity for me to meet people. I have met people um, during this, during this pandemic time period that I don't even think I would have ever had the opportunity to meet and actually agree with and, and talk strategy with who maybe 10 years ago, I might've foolishly just dismissed as right wing or conservative or, yeah. uh, and I, I, that's a gift that I didn't expect out of this because I have met new friends, allies, and comrades. And my door always remains open for my former left friends, allies, and comrades. I, I mean, I marched with them against Monsanto and suddenly now they're pro Moderna, but I'm, you know, I, I understand it's, it's a complicated issue, but so yeah. y- you have this way of, of uncomplicating things that I think we really need. And I really like your take on the conspiracies of that. It's comforting to say this group of people does all the bad. And you can understand why you'd want to do that, but it's not going to be helpful in creating the sustainable change we need yeah. if, if that's the perspective we have. So I just want to yeah. say thank you. I appreciate you doing that. Yeah. If that were true, the solution would be easy. You know, just get rid of those fuckers. <laughs> yeah, that would actually be kind of fun. But yeah. um, Charles, I I really enjoyed get, getting a chance to chat with you. I appreciate you taking time to 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 uh, be here today. Um, once again, the, your book is it's um, there's it, check the show notes. I'm talking to the listeners. Check the show notes. All Charles's links are in there. His Substack, his website, his Instagram, Facebook, everything is in there. And then the the links to order the coronation and to learn more about his mindset and you know just just check him out. Like he, the, the, this you, this this conversation was just a small taste of what he does on a regular basis. So thank you for what you do and thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks, Mickey. Very generous of you to say all that. <laughs> all right, um, talk to you soon. Okay, bye bye. I'll be back with some closing notes right after one more brief word from our sponsor. Hey, Mickey Z again. Um, I trust you're enjoying this episode. And if you are, I'd really, really appreciate it if you would become a paid subscriber to Post Woke. For just $5 a month, you get daily content, including these podcasts at least once a week. That's $5 a month, less than 17 cents a day. So please consider doing this. Your help is essential. It's crucial. And this project depends on it. So thank you in advance. And let's get back to the show. As this episode highlighted, there are so many ways to create change. Traditional activism is not one of those ways, but we seem stuck in this popular paradigm. One reason for such subversive stagnation is ego. I mean, who among us likes to admit 
we're wrong. Who doesn't dig in their heels when told that they're not keeping up with the times? Success in any realm of life requires a delicate emotional balance. We must believe strongly enough in ourselves to boldly put forth an agenda. Simultaneously, we must accept that we are more than capable of getting some or many things wrong. That's why it's far easier to engage in confirmation bias. It is far easier to establish yet another hierarchy in which ideals, ideas funnel down from the few at the top to the many at the bottom. It is a classic human tendency to take what seems to be the easy way out. Only when we begin to deoccupy our egos can we identify some of our cognitive dissonances. It's been said that heartbreak is your ego cracking. In the name of the common good and our shared future, we must risk this heartbreak by never becoming complacent and or too sure of ourselves. Let go of the past, question all historical narratives, and if a tactic works, immediately start adapting it. Remember, whether you do, do so or not, the parasites in charge never stop adapting. And that's how they stay light years ahead of their opposition. Spoiler alert, we are their opposition. In the meantime, while you deconstruct the harmful activist hive mind and address your own anxiety about change, you can and must stay busy doing the grunt work that requires our attention in this moment. Refocus your good intentions away from marching and chanting and make an immediate impact by living a life of service. The vulnerable among us gain nothing from exhibitionist protests and they can no longer wait for us to figure out a new approach. They need and deserve our help right now. So each of us must discover ways to create desperately needed results in our own community immediately. Here are some suggestions. Find an issue that deeply moves you, an issue that you can and will stay committed to in the long run. Create a small-scale program of direct service to address that issue within your reach and within your capabilities. Pledge yourself to this work. Look forward to doing the work. Learn from the work and love the work. Do all of this and more while working with others to dismantle the current counterproductive blueprint of dissent. Imagine that. Imagine a small army of volunteers putting down their protest placards and instead taking part in evolving compassionate service, specifically addressing immediate needs. Imagine a culture of ineffective activism uprooted and replaced by a culture of impactful action founded in love. Let's do more than imagine that. But in the meantime, keep your guard up.